This is the Sea to Sky podcast with Marcus, weaving through the issues in Sea to Sky country. Welcome to another edition of the Sea to Sky podcast. My name is Marcus, and today I am sitting with Eric Anderson. Welcome. Thank you for joining the program. One of 22 people running for council, and this is not your first rodeo. Question I open pretty much with all the councillors as of late is, what makes you stand out from the other 22 candidates? Well, I think I can uh, begin, Marcus, by explaining that um, I've been very closely involved at Municipal Hall uh, representing a variety of uh, issues and organizations for quite a number of years now. Uh, One of the questionnaires circulated uh, this time around asked how many council meetings you've been to in the last uh, 12 months. I think I've been to about 30 to 40, and that includes a couple, of course, online watching and producing transcripts and this sort of thing. So I have been on behalf of various interests, quite uh, closely engaged with Municipal Hall. Of course, that leads you to come to the conclusion, you know, maybe it could be more economical for me and for my these interests if we had a seat at the table, if you like. But I see that there is a transition uh, in the membership of the, in the mayor and council seats this time around. And from past experience and observation, continuity is really important. And one of the things I think I can offer is really good familiarity with the planning history of the community, having watched it, and but also researched it as, if you like, a local historian. I'm b- very interested in the geography of Squamish and its planning history and uh, the history of the harbor front and so on. And uh, so I, I'm hoping that this knowledge and background may be of use. And yeah, if you know how things are working and how things are going, and yes, we are hitting a precipice of change, and you are aware of a lot of the policies from before. Next question is, then, one of the biggest guiding documents you have for the future is the OCP. Is this one of those documents we're heavily engaged in? Do you sort of agree of where where it sort of is at the moment? Yes, I think I've been through three or four OCP processes quite closely, 1998, 2000, well, the 2000s, because the last one took a number of years to before it was wrapped up, and then the most recent one. So I have uh, often been called upon to speak on behalf of the forest industry, community forests, uh, woodlot licensees, uh, the industry needing solutions for, you know, where do you park your truck fleet? What's the long-term plan for stuff like that? This is what you sort of do for a living, right? I I would say I divide half my time between the forest sector and the manufacturing, the wood products, bouncing back and forth between the two. Funny as it may sound, they're two different worlds with not a lot lot to do with each other. But they both (laughs) have issues uh, at times with local government and provincial government. I can say that as a consultant, communications and research consultant, they've been my base. So OCP, back on it. So Yes, well the OCP this time around had to address some gaps from last time. The last time, I think one of the challenges with the process was it took too long and it lost momentum, and in the end, the input process suffered from that. So we had to restore some issues there. For example, estuary management plan had been completely overlooked in the 2009 OCP. A a number of us were at work to restore that, and we were really pleased with the receptivity of staff. I think this last OCP uh, process was a success story. Not everybody was satisfied, but I think that the, some of the growth management issues relating to employment lands were really well looked after. And I can uh, really have to give credit to staff in particular 
for being so receptive to input on those issues. And it's a big issue. We're looking at lots of change, and that means we have to look at diversifying a little bit of the economy. So yes, that includes development of employment lands, that includes possibly managing how we develop housing in the future. Um, this is why the OCP came about, I think why it has been so successful and why we had so much engagement, because we have lack of resources, lack of funds, in, in terms of uh, we've already so highly taxed and with so much development, it's putting a strain on our system. So where do we go from here? Um, so when it comes to economic development, uh, when it comes down to try and balance the taxes and also properly grow, um, where do you think we should start first to create that extra income flow to sort of work on the certain things that we need to do to grow? So are we looking at bringing in businesses first? Are we looking at where do you think we should start? Well, I think the first thing that we need to be mindful of, and this is what the OCP is intended to do for us, is to preserve options for the future. Preserve options for all of the obvious sectors that should have a future here. The, we want to attract people and businesses who uh, complement how we live and play in Squamish and complement our values, complement what our natural attributes are. We are a transportation corridor and a West Coast port. And that's something that was given to us by nature. We're not going to change that, and we, we need to derive the benefits from them and manage that as best we can. It also has some tourism benefits because we have other sectors that pay for that stuff, and tourism can kind of uh, benefit from it and piggyback on it. That's been a long history in Squamish. So we've mentioned here transportation, tourism. I think that there is a future for manufacturing. It's a more sophisticated, high-end manufacturing. And we see a number of companies in a variety of areas being based in Squamish and being based here quite successfully. They need to pay their people well because it's an expensive place to oh live. Yeah. Well, that's so part of the growth, yeah. Yes. Well, preserving options then is very important. We need to be mindful of what each of these sectors needs in terms of land and uh, resources and attention and, and, and strategy plans, if you like. The OCP has given us a kind of a broad-based map. The next phase is zoning, and uh, each one of these economic sectors and jobs uh, potential areas will also be a part of that process where we fine-tune what we can do. How do we mix live and play and work in limited in our constraints that we have. Land use planning is so important for Squamish because we are land poor. We have all kinds of challenges in our landscape. It's very dynamic, not only rivers, we got volcanoes sur surrounding us. And so uh, some of them, these mountains are coming down <laughs> as we see in the Chikai Fan and uh, the Stuamis Basin. So these are all things to be mindful of and uh, out of that, we come with layers of planning and strategies that we hope can take care of everybody. We can have it all, if you like. Well, we're talking about sparth growth strategies because we have to grow. I don't think you're going to stop people from moving here. And so we still need to sort of accommodate the, the people who are here. In regards to, you're talking about building community. You're talking about your word transport hub within the corridor. But we don't need people commuting in the city, I think, to, to be part of this life. I think we need people to sort of get back into the community and, and sort of stay here and live here and be part. Because I think that's what we're missing is a lot of people engagement within uh, extracurricular activities. Because on the weekends... They'd rather just hang with their family and do their thing instead of be volunteering on festivals and, and so forth. They want to be here and be part of the community. So we have to create, I think, that culture again. And to do that, you need people to work here and stay here. There's been a lot of talk about bringing in companies to Squamish, like rec tech companies or, or these clean emission companies or these environmental companies. Do you see that we have to bring these companies in or do you think we can grow from within? 
we actually have a number of businesses and projects and concepts, if you like, uh, groups of people with ideas here now. Their issue is where do we go? Where physically uh, is, a, is a top priority. There are companies, for example, in the bioenergy field looking for opportunities in the Chikai Fan. They want to partner with Carbon Engineering up there at their new proposed site. There's companies in areas in, in the waterfront, and it's miscellaneous, all kinds of things down at the waterfront because down on the lower mainland, they haven't managed their waterfront down there all that well either. So we have refugees coming up, and we've been warned about this for years or tipped off that there's opportunities here, like boat design, boat construction, so that we have some pretty good ideas already about what has potential here because they are here already, at least in nucleus, in, in many different areas. So when it comes to that sort of feel, like when it comes to manufacturing, when it comes to these, uh, these, these green technologies, the nucleus is here. But a lot of the people who live here are professionals. They, uh, yes. They're accountants, they're managers, or so forth. Do you think there's a way of bringing them back? Do you have to bring in, say, build office towers or office places or to bring sort of companies here and make a somewhat of a hub here? There may be opportunity for that in select areas, but it can be overestimated. I don't want to discount it because there's lots of competition for those t types of businesses. And we do have some, if you like, natural advantages. Our surroundings, our live-and-play uh, environment is, is an advantage, but we're not alone in being able to offer this. And we should also keep in mind that we have had companies come and go in this field, and there's nothing to prevent them from picking up and going. We should also keep in mind that there are other companies here that are going to be here for the long haul. We can have both. But um, again, this comes back to land use planning and making sure that we preserve the options for both. But I would agree that there's opportunity to attract uh, people in the sort of, if you like, the knowledge-based industry. And we can build on our university sites and we will likely expand those because in the lower mainland, the universities are running out of land themselves and they're looking for places for satellite campuses. So I'm optimistic that probably UBC, that's the discussions have been carried along most further with, furthest with UBC, but a s another satellite campus in Squamish is not out of the realm of possibility. So that we can build on what Capilano University has here, they have a mandate to serve the corridor, and I'm sure that we're going to see them back or building their base here in future at some point when the resourcing is in place. Well, at Quest University, too, has, uh, yes. has programs in place for locals to go, and, and, and basically um, it's, it's not overly expensive like they think. The locals, if they go to Quest University, they actually save themselves a lot of money. So, so but when we're talking about growth, you're talking about getting that balanced options, keeping all your options open. How do we do that? How do we manage the land use? You said it twice now that we have to keep our options open, we have to balance this this way, and we have to make sure that we have this and this uh, in, a, in a balanced for So how do we do that? I think one of the, a part of the experience of Squamish over the last, I'm going to go back 15 years now probably, maybe a little bit longer, is we had some very big messy debates about what we should be doing with our waterfront 15 to 20 years ago. And it didn't work out well for us in that we had kind of a major swing of the pendulum and a lot of continuity was lost and people weren't getting along. We've all healed from that time. There was a major project proposal, uh, as some people will recall, down in the downtown waterfront. We've healed from that. But what one of the outcomes was that we stopped meeting together around the table. 
and uh, identifying who all the stakeholders were in land use planning. I think we've come a long way to the point where we now have an economic development strategy plan, a document. We've just been approved this last year. We've been waiting for it a long time. And I'm confident that it assumes that we're all going to sit at the table and we're all going to share information about our respective needs. And that's a major plus, and I'm confident that that'll be very useful for us in looking after, well, we can have it all. I hope that we can have our cake and eat it too, but there's a lot of things we need to do. There's a number being thrown around, $100 million is what they're talking about in terms of amenities and, and fixing things up in town, like Brennan Park and uh, adding sidewalks here and stuff like that. So getting that $100 million uh, is not easy. I would, I would say it's, it's going to be quite, that's um, going to be basically what you're going to be working on I think when you're in, in council for the next four years. So how do we bring in this revenue then? How do we bring in the stream? So we've talked about balanced growth. We're bringing in business. Now, how about like projects like LNG or Garibaldi or Squamish? Well, I think wood fiber LNG is a done deal. They are proceeding. And the Garibaldi at Squamish is a little bit of an open slate. They admit themselves that they've got a lot of work to do in assembling their team, if you like, putting together their, uh, the next layer of detail in their planning, and they'll be coming back to us. It's important for both of these projects that the, the municipal government is in lockstep with them, can influence them appropriately. And that is it. There's a balance there of, of good relations, maintaining good relations. I'm not convinced that that has always been fulfilled. However, in the case of Garibaldi at Squamish, I feel that it is important that we accept there's going to be a development on that mountain and proceed from there with Squamish interests in mind and preserving that best possible negotiating position. It is still a blank slate. There's nothing that sealed as regards the fate of that mountain. But as somebody working in the forest management area, I have to uh, relate that we're under a lot of pressure. And there's no way that a resource, a tourism resource like Brome Ridge, can be locked up for a, a small group or a select few. Or I think it's going to be one of our backcountry avenues that's going to see some development and let's influence it appropriately through being mindful of what the role of local government is. So from a forestry point of view, you don't like the idea that it's in Brome Ridge? Or you're not Actually, not the forest industry over the years, and this the Brome Ridge uh, proposal under various names, got it, it got its start in the late 1950s. Yeah, it's been a while so for a while. It's been around a long while, and the people who uh, were involved in timber operations on Brome Ridge are still, are still around. And also the people who lost money <laughs> during the early 70s development, they're still around too. So that the Brome Ridge story is a long-standing one. And it will involve uh, some impacts on uh, allowable harvest uh, in the corridor wide because we're in a kind of a volume-based system and it's a waterbed effect. However, one of the things that's evolving is a community forest for Squamish. It's been 20 years in the making. I was involved in the late 90s and at that time the proposal was for Brome Lake and Cat Lake area would be part of it. And we've come back to that place where the small business sales or BC timber sales uh, chart areas surrounding Squamish, much of that will become a part of a community force and they'll be neighbors and partners, I'm convinced, to a future Rome Ridge development. So that there will be trade-offs definitely for forestry, but it's like there was at the Gondola. Forestry will come back to a, an area, a given area in the landscape after 60, 80 years or longer, 
whereas uh, tourism revenue is constant from that gondola operation, and so forestry understands that. And there are going to be trade-offs, but we'll make it up for it with, with security and good partnerships. Well, good partnerships with the builders for the, to make sure that the forestry and the environment stays at a, at a you know at a level where, where it can be enjoyed by everyone and everything or every creature that lives in there. I appreciate the history because I didn't really get up to the history of, of Brome Ridge and what was planned in there throughout the ages, um, well, the ages uh, throughout the decades. I'm making you seem like you're really old. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that used to be all logging land then that was in that area. Yes, that's correct. A project like that, though, I mean, we're bringing in tourism and you just said so yourself with the gondola. It's one of those things where you're ready to make that arrangement for the sake of tourism and bringing people here. But a project at that size, I mean, that will bring in a lot of people within the area. So mm-hmm. how moving these people around and how to house them. I mean, there's so many big questions surrounding that GAS. Is, is there any one that's more paramount in your mind? I think that the highway traffic is one that already has been universally acknowledged by all kind of parts of the spectrum and that we have p- folks looking at this project. The project has a number of large questions, another being water, that uh, are still to-dos, are still to be disco- uh, resolved. However, I think we should keep in mind, and I believe we should also advocate optimally for Squamish, we need to have a project that grows organically and not in a grandiose manner that uh, is too far ahead of itself. Even with the five phases they plan or the four different phases, it's that, that's still too grandiose? No, I think that there's still, I've been referring to an open slate, but I think that there is and there must be for the purposes of the resort uh, proponents in their dealings with the community, there is still a lot of flexibility here, and as there should be, as finding the, the right pace and scale and type of development there. They have their vision, and Squamish has its circumstances as well. I believe that the boundary expansion is going to be a prominent issue, and there yes. is already a, a you're, request you're for preluding into my next question to to advise us on this or to explore it further. The economic development uh, impact study that was done a few years ago is dated, and we're going to have to go back and uh, have a look at that. New data, the the world has changed in the last eight to ten years since that study was done. Yeah, I mean, I think when that study was done, they weren't thinking about the resort being 365. I don't think they were looking at uh, the mountain bike uh, park. Uh, They weren't looking at, uh, they were just looking at strictly skiing. You didn't have a a Vail Corp or a mayor. Well, now there's a new mayor, but the previous mayor is saying, we don't want weekenders up here anymore in Whistler. So where are the Vancouverites going to go? There is precursors to actually having a successful place uh, in Garibaldi Squamish. The first flag that comes to my mind is the SLRD doesn't want to handle it. Why did the SLRD say, you know what? Yeah. Uh, and the province is like, well, as long as you have a municipality supporting you, we're all for it. So and all of a sudden they come to Squamish asking us to take the land. This is my first red flag is right there. Okay, mm-hmm. Why? I, if, I, if it was such a great project, why isn't the SLRD jumping all over it? Yes. Well, this is also a conversation that has its, uh, a long history. And I think that you've already touched on one thing that's changed in the way the world has turned, and that is that we're looking here at, at no doubt, a four-season resort. Worcester's summer occupancy is at least as good as winter over the last few years It's getting bigger, too. And that's a trend, and it's also a trend in the the European Alps, where I was just recently. I think that uh, one of the things that we should mention is the role of the provincial government. We have seen in this high tourism traffic corridor 
a decline in investment and, if you like, just attention on the part of the province and parks in particular, but also natural resources, forests and lands. We've really lost their presence as a partner and as an investor in facilities. We need them back. Uh, we are really overwhelmed with visitor pressures and Joffre Lakes Park has been in the news, of course, but there Up are many examples. Right. They are an, uh, the central agency involved with us in approving the Garibaldi at Squamish development. So the provincial government is a very important player in the whole context of how we address tourism opportunities and pressures. So how do you get the province engaged then? Well, I think that that is something we need to collaborate together with communities in the SLRD on. And I think that we all are looking at it the same way. And I'm confident that uh, Squamish and the other communities in the SLRD uh, have much in common to proceed with uh, good, healthy political partnerships vis-a-vis uh, -vis the provincial government uh, in the years ahead. So in terms of the province not sort of stepping up, like you said, when it comes to parks and stuff, who's been footing that bill then? Has it been the districts and municipalities sort of stepping there up? There has definitely been offloading. And uh, we have, just to the south of us, we've got the Stuamas Chief Park and Shannon Falls and other provincial facilities in, in the neighborhood down there. See, we, we've been talking about the traffic jams and the parking issues, and hold it, let's just sit back for a minute. These are all provincial parks, and the role of the province is just not being acknowledged in our discussion of problems and solutions here. I think that our MLA is uh, somebody uh, who had the longstanding uh, involvement in corridor affairs and been a good uh, participant in, in this dialogue on our behalf. But we need to work effectively and together in presenting our situation to the province. Our corridor is important to provincial tourism. It's what they take abroad in their messaging. And we're just not seeing that uh, reinvestment that is needed for infrastructure. So what's, what's stopping us from basically doing it ourselves and then giving them a bill? <laughs> like, we fix it, here's the bill. That's not so easy when we have, for example, right now we're not in government. <laughs> and we're not a competitive riding. And, and in my observation, that's a significant issue has been over the years where we have been kind of left out because we've either been taken for granted or we're just not a part of government, one or the other. I think that this we're not alone in the world, and we have to realize, uh, uh, and I think of this often in, in connection with Squamish, is that we're not a community that pays its own way. That highway was a gift, that $700 million highway. And we're asking for all kinds of things from the provincial government, so we also, on the other side of the ledger, need to be mindful about uh, what is our role? Are we, going, are we creating problems from the province in how we plan and execute our own future. I would argue a little bit about that highway being a gift because they wanted the Olympics so badly. Mm. And the Olympics included Vancouver and Whistler. We were sort of in the middle. So we happened to get the highway great because they wanted the Olympics. It's the same thing how we got, they, you know, in Richmond and all the others got new arenas and skating rinks and ice sheets. And up, uh, up north they had the ski jumping and the bobsled and all that stuff. And when we came along saying, hey, we'll, we'll get a skating rink in our, our neck of the woods too for some Paralympic stuff. And that never happened. It's like, yes, we got the highway. But then we did get the short end of the stick when it came down to, uh, you know, when they had a big infrastructure boon for the Olympics. Olympics. So saying that it's a gift is like, well, no, it's kind of like they had to build it for their little pet project called the Olympics. And we're sort of sitting in the middle of it going, hey, we're here too. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Squamish has been a, a has been a case for the province. For example, if we think back to the Ashley Power development, where the mm. province came in with new legislation, they were just right. weren't going to put up with us for or, or that episode. Whatever you may think of that episode, it was an illustration of look, the province is. You're asking for a bunch of money for the province, but you won't be cooperate with re revenue generating projects like that. In the case of forestry and lands management, in 1997, the province said, we can't afford to run forest recreation programs here anymore. We're going to move that office to Nanaimo. Ten years later, they said, we can't afford, we're not generating the revenue from the timber sales program in there because nobody wants us to do any logging anymore, so we're moving that office to Chilliwack. We lost out of that. That is just one illustration that, that uh, we can't assume when the urban center has so many demands on it, uh, making to the province and other senior government for transit and everything else, that we are, have some kind of status that we deserve this and that. We have to be mindful of our place in the provincial economy uh, that produces the revenue for uh, the amenities and the reinvestments that we'd like to see here. But we do have leverage, right? We, I, mean, I would like to say, like, for example, with LNG, we do have leverage to say, listen, this is a provincial and, and federal project, but hey, you are on our lands, and we, we are going to be housing you. We definitely need you to contribute to the taxes. We need we, and basically stand our ground on that because they are in our space. It's the same thing with the cannabis laws that are coming through that's legalizing cannabis. So, and, you know, we, we pay for the RCMP here, right? Municipality pays for them. We pay for the enforcement. We pay for the implication. So we do have, I think, not knowing our place, but knowing, like, you know what? We know what we deserve, not necessarily knowing our place. Like, you know what I mean? We're saying like that. We're like, we, we, we should get what's ours and know what's I ours. I quite agree. And I think that the uh, taxation issue relative to wood fiber LNG will be an important matter that is going to be on our lap as a community to sort out with the province over the next year. It will tie in with other projects elsewhere. We're going to be part of a larger context. Of course, the, the major pulp mills on the island and further up the coast have been a part of the uh, discussion of uh, municipal taxation for a while now. We're going to be part of that context, the port as well. So Squamish Terminals is part of a ports tax program and legislation. We'll need to consider all of these things in finding our, our due place with respect to tax revenue from wood fiber. Your sympathy is mine. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day, I feel how I know how business works. I know there's a lot of nuances that I'm missing. Also, when it comes to council and municipal governments, I, you know, I, I'd like you, I, I follow along, but there's a lot of nuances that we're missing. I understand that. But I do feel that we need to be in a position to basically say, you know what, what's ours is ours. And I think that's the, big, the biggest criticism I feel from the last four years of when I'm talking to people and candidates is that the last group uh, that was here did not quite understand that. They, they left a lot of money on the table. And so when we go for developments and when we go uh, get big projects in here, that we be sure that Squamish is well represented in terms of we get our amenities packages, we are able to upgrade what we need because we're at a point now we need to do that. Leaving money on the table, there are some good illustrations of that. One of them is dredging in the Mamcombe Blind Channel. We had a leaseholder with a railway property on the oceanfront lands that offered to do dredging for us, major dredging, before they left the property. That's now over 12 years ago or so. And we said, no, just leave as fast as you can. Just leave the keys behind and bye-bye. 
and now we go to the province and we say we all of a sudden need to build a bridge because we're building a bunch of condos down there and we need a new crossing of the blind channel can you help us and the province says what mm. the province has already balked at paying the cost of that bridge now we're going to go back again and we're going to need to have a new conversation because that is clearly a major project for our our tax base is is it's going to be hard to handle that's going to be a very expensive crossing yeah we need well we so need the way in and out especially yes. for densifying i mean right now with the jumar and the one traffic light and the railway there you that one way in one way out it's going to be quite jammed that's a project that's a bit of a sleeper i don't think that it hasn't been on the public uh, agenda so to speak uh, quite yet a number of us have been watching this over the years. You're building or planning to build all of this density in downtown, and the truck route solution has been occupied more attention, and it is part of the, the package of, of dilemmas in, in getting in and out of downtown and waterfront. But uh, this new bridge over the Blind Channel is going to be a very costly project and one that we really haven't come to terms with. And it's, uh, you began with the question of leaving money on the table, or that was part of your question. And there are big ticket items. Uh, we've left money on the table. There are other big t ticket items we're going to have to negotiate. We better be looking at the whole picture as we go. All right, now you're going to have to list me those things. <laughs> you said there's a, there's a number. I need, I need more now. I've been involved recently I as representing the forest industry, and we have an issue of harbor dredging. We have not seen Mamcom Blind Channel dredging in a significant way since 1986. And we're now at a point where our recreational boating community, of course, they've been watching this and complaining about it for years, but it's affecting all of us. It's, a, it's affecting real estate development and, and the, the planned projects on the waterfront, and they're part of it too. And, of course, they're a revenue part of it, and uh, they need the fill, and so everybody needs to fit together and can. Uh, more recently, with issues in the, the Stuamis River has been changing on us. Things have been happening up in that watershed, and we have more material coming down, blocking the channel uh, now more and more than in the past. And it's come to the point where a little bit of maintenance dredging we did uh, three, four years ago, uh, that's just overcome again. And uh, so we need to now, first of all, get ourselves lined up together around a table. Who can do what for who and how can we work together? But we are going to need some help. And for that, we're going to have to explain to senior governments the economic role of the blind channel. This is, a, you're asking for a list of projects. This is a, we can call it a multi-million. It's at least a couple of million dollars that's going to be new money into the community we're going to acquire to do the comprehensive job that's needed. And this is an integrated dredging plan that's going to do habitat restoration, land protection because Squamish Nation lands is eroding, and the navigation maintenance for boating and also commercial traffic. We're going to have to acknowledge to senior governments or explain to them and acknowledge for ourselves the commercial transportation role. We can have fish boats here. They're looking here to put up fish boats, place for nets and stuff like that. Well, that's commercial traffic, and that scores you some points in negotiation with senior government. We're going to have to realize that the forest industry is there for the long haul. They don't have anywhere else to go. And that barge traffic and new types of barge traffic, big and small, for specialized uh, uh, marine transport. This is a part of our argument, the case we're going to have to make, so we need to be clear about it ourselves. So this is a big ticket item, one very important for the tourism and economic future of Squamish is harbor maintenance and properly realizing the vision for our waterfront.
Well, Eric, I must I must admit that you're, you're bringing a different perspective than what I've been what I've been hearing. Uh, usually, I've been hearing about growing inside Squamish, bringing in businesses, rec tech, and all that sort of stuff, and green companies. The fact that we can still use our, our nature and our surroundings and, and make that profitable and yet beneficial for everyone in terms of uh, environment and tourism and everyone. Uh, thank you for bringing that up because uh, it's one of those things I haven't heard yet. And so, I mean, if there is a possibility of doing all this and making sure we have the right partnerships and to bring in that extra income, that's, that's less of a burden, I guess, on the rest of us to come up with that big hundred million dollar bill that we're looking at to fix all the amenities that's missing here. Partnerships is a key word and, and a real interesting partnership story, success story for Squamish is the Herring Recovery Program in, in Northern Howe Sound. That's a partnership between industry and naturalists, if you like. Now, in the Malcolm Line Channel, which is where our primary herring spawning area was, we've developed that, and we've silted it in. We've got hog fuel at the bottom there, and we put in new diking and pr flood protection there that is, we're not going to restore the natural habitat there. Some of our recovery program, most of it is really artificial spawning habitat, and that's where the partnerships come in, because it turns out under the Squamish Terminal's dock is an optimal place to, if you like, set up a herring factory. We've got protection from predators, protection from uh, sun and frost. We have under those two docks of Squamish terminals, we have brought back herring spawning to historic levels in Northern Howe Sound. And we've seen the implications of that for other marine life in Northern Howe Sound. And that is all to do with the partnership that got started 10, 12 years ago between the, the ports industry and local conservationists. So that's an example, and that has certainly economic value, no doubt. Well, it's the story has economic value for Squamish, for sure. And uh, those partnerships, we need to have a dialogue so that we can identify them properly. But as we move forward with waterfront development in the Blind Channel and redevelopment, if you like, there's going to be new uh, uh, po potential for those kinds of uh, synergies between tourism and other forms of transportation. We don't need to have a dock for tourists and another dock for other types of vessels. And in fact, one of the legacies will be from the wood fiber LNG installations on this side of, of House Sound will be that they will be able to be used for tourists. Having been a tourist operator in Northern House Sound, we use uh, the Squamish Marine Services water taxis on weekends to take tourists out out there with about 150 different uh, trips of, of tourists and that is all uh, uh, piggybacking on infrastructure and vessels that are paid for by industry and this is kind of a quiet partnership and things like that go on all the time and with good dialogue uh, th there's a good future for those partnerships on the waterfront. So as role as counselor then how can you oversee that pr proper management when it comes down to making sure that when we develop these areas that we make sure the habitats stay the way they are and we can also be conducive to tourism without affecting uh, negatively on the environment? We don't always have to assume that the district takes it all on. I think in some areas it can be at arm's length. I'm convinced that we should be going that way on economic development programming bring the business community in, other stakeholders to advise that program. We don't have to have it all micromanaged from council chambers or from the planning department office. And another example is the Squamish Estuary Management Committee. That's a multi-stakeholder committee. It's not a district committee. It's at arm's length from the district and the other, other government levels. And it's kind of a co-management entity, if you like. And it plays a role, or can play a role, to advise and inform and a place for information exchange. And those kinds of at arm's length or offloading of 
at least advising decision making can happen in a number of areas. Another one is housing. I'm convinced that it's timely that we set up some kind of, whether you want to call it a housing authority or some kind of a coordinating agency that's at arm's length from the district, and I think the district will benefit from that. It will reduce, reduce the stress load, perhaps, in the I'm, in the I'm always suspect hall. about adding another layer of government, though, because if you look at the Whistler Housing Authority and, and you look at the success, it's debatable, right? And so when you're adding another layer of bureaucracy to something um, at a town this size, I, I'm not sure if that's really a positive. Uh, my experience with the Worcester Housing Authority is that they thought the job was done <laughs> and uh, the world turned again and then they had to get back at it. But uh, I do agree with you and I, we would emphasize that we're not after another layer of bureaucracy. But I think that sometimes you need an entity to provide input that's a little bit that isn't politically controlled. And during the 2000s, for example, we had every new government or council that came in had to fire everybody that was on a committee. And one, at one time, we had over 20 committees, I think. And it's frustrating for the citizens that do put their time in. And uh, right now so we, we have quite a few committees on right now, right? Yeah, the, the Economic Development Committee, we have the Waterfront Committee, we have this committee. So there's quite a few going on already. I'm not sure that we do have a waterfront committee, but uh, uh, we have had about uh, 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, but we do have our estuary management committee, and it's going to have its first meeting in two years, <laughs> far too long, coming up in October. Yes, I think that, well, perhaps what we can agree on th is that there's a place for, there has to be entities there for citizens and uh, stakeholders, businesses, conservation groups, what have you, to be able to come forward and to, to know that their time and, and efforts are valued in giving input. I also think that, especially in a period of growth like we've seen with all these applications, several thousand housing units on the books of the planning department, is that I think that they, I'm inclined to think that they would appreciate a little bit of relief and be able to count on uh, some advisory support from the outside as well. Also, to slow things down maybe a little bit. Um, and one thing I think with having a brand new council with brand new fresh faces and is the fact that council will have to slow down a bit. And that's people are saying like, well, the, you know, shift in management such a drastic shift is a, is a negative thing. The one silver lining I find the fact that we have new people on council is that the process will have to slow down a little bit because you're going to have to get your feet wet. You have to get used to how it works uh, and the, the, the nuance that you might have not been aware of. Like be, being in council chambers is different than being in the back with the staff and working on the nuances of, of all the deals. So things for it to slow down, I think, would benefit because we've been developing so fast that uh, a little bit of a shift of gears to a lower gear is beneficial. But and also to get the proper uh, policies in place, the proper bylaws in place, the proper zoning, so that we can fulfill what the spirit of the OCP is and then grow in such a way that we benefit everybody and our surroundings. And like I said, Eric, you're one of the first to bring up the surrounding environment that, as a potential money generator where everybody has been focusing on growth on the inside, bringing in business and getting the people um, working here and internalizing instead of realizing there's a region that we can use or the grander district that we can use to sort of benefit, you know, uh, Squamish. I think that uh, Squamish is becoming a part of the lower mainland for certain planning questions and economic development as well. And we need to do that sort of on our own terms that fit with the lower mainland, but I think we should be in stronger touch. The lower mainland, uh, including Squamish, is behind the times in planning legislation compared to the Puget Sound region. They face all the same growth management challenges as we do, the I-5 corridor. 
Their planning legislation is miles ahead of us. I would say, in fact, two generations of planning documents and strategies ahead of us on growth management. For example, if you come to a city in the Puget Sound corridor with a major housing development program, well, you're going to be asked, uh, are you taking up waterfront space and is there alternative uses for that waterfront space because it's rare? You're going to have to settle this checklist here. And is there transit there? Because if there isn't, sorry, you're going to have to move back in the line a little bit there. And is there local jobs, according to our jobs housing balance uh, ratio quota here for this particular municipality or local government area, I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait a little bit. And we've got another project over here that's actually creating jobs. So they're going to go to the front of the line. That's yeah. the way it goes. And so I would say that growth, we can talk about slowing things down in, in our growth management discussion. But I think it's very important to emphasize priorities. Right. And whether it's transit or amenities or affordable housing, it has to be a fit because in the end, the congestion issues we're facing are very real. And it's not only our corridor, it's the entire lower mainland region. And I agree with you. And, and I, I tried to bring this up, I think, with the other candidates in terms of policy, whereas it's tough with policy-wise to say, all right, you know, this is the rules that we're going to play with. So if you want to come and make a development here, here are the ground rules. And then at that point, if you want to upzone, then, then there's some priorities that we have. And you, I think you've nailed on most of the priorities I've mentioned that we should be looking at. So, yeah, it's, it's terms of, all right, who comes to the front of the line and who does it? And those would be, I think, the incentives we're looking forward to bringing in some companies up here. I think some of the uh, project promoters, too, appreciate that dialogue. I, I'm a recently retired director of the Chamber of Commerce, and uh, through our uh, executive director, we put together a questionnaire for developers, particularly housing developers. Those are the development proposals coming to us as the Chamber Board for comment and support and so on. And so we're, we've given them a checklist and asked them to comment. What are you doing for X, Y, Z? What are you doing for environmental issues and within your project area? Are you adding or are you, do you have a local purchasing policy and so forth? And our experience is that the development community appreciates these questions and is stimulated by them and can offer some very interesting commentary and uh, new ideas uh, in, the, in that kind of an exchange. Well, thank you very much, Eric. Way to save the best for last. Thank you, sir. <laughs> is there anything else you want to mention? Anything else that we sort of glanced over that you want to dig in? Uh, now's your chance. <laughs> Marcus, we've had a tremendous conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity. A very vigorous uh, uh, conversation here that much appreciated. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. How can people get a hold of you and get in touch and get find information, your websites or... You know, I'm a communications guy, but I'm not a tech guy. <laughs> and I don't have a website yet, but I do plan to have that. So we'll watch for that. But I am on Facebook quite actively. I've got two Facebook sites, Eric Anderson and Eric Anderson for Squamish. And I, I've got about 60 questions posed to me already, and I'm on about 39 or 40. Uh, and we'll get to the rest of them within the next few days. Anderson with an E. That's correct. Anderson with an E. Well, thank you very much, Eric. Appreciate thank you again, this. Mark. This is the Sea to Sky podcast. If you have a comment or story ideas, please check out our website at seataskypodcast.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Sea to Sky podcast. Thank you for clicking us on. 